Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have spoken, that you are a God who is engaged and present and speaking. Even though these words were spoken through Jesus about 2,000 years ago verbally, and John recorded them, Lord, we hold them in our hands today, and I pray that your spirit would just be just as active in speaking these words to us this morning, stirring them in our hearts a greater affection for you, empowering in our lives the desire and ability to follow you and to walk with you. Lord Jesus, may you have your way in us this morning. We gather desperately to hear from you. So may you speak, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way that you've already done that. Through the smiles and the hellos in the hallway and the entryway, through good coffee and through people coming to prepare it and set it up, through the music, through um, all that you've been doing in our lives this past week, Lord, you are constantly speaking. And so we thank you for that. And we pause now to just hear specifically and directly and more intentionally from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, this text is fascinating to me, and it's animated much of my thinking about the church life over the last couple months. And I'm excited to jump into it and, and look at this text specifically this morning. But I'm going to hold that till the end of the sermon, actually. So I wanted Linda to read it. This is kind of going to be our core text, but we're actually going to just spend about half of the time looking at this text. Before we get back to this text, I want to address a couple things. Number one, thank you guys for sitting up front. I'm a relational guy, so I need people closer to me. So next week, if you come to the 9 a.m. service, and if you're comfortable, Come and join those in the front few pews. And also, it's, I know it's weird and awkward to like sit alone, right? You feel like you're standing out. And so please surround this crew right here next Sunday if you're at the 9 a.m. service. I'm proud of you. Yes, amen, Jerry. Um, I'm proud of you for knowing that church started at 9 and not 10. We'll see who wanders in here at 10, half an hour from now. I'll be halfway through the sermon. Um, so we'll see who wanders in then. And uh, yeah, just glad to have you. So I wanted to address that. The other thing I want to address is that treats, so Linda, in such a gracious way, told you about the need for hospitality. The reality is, if we don't have more people sign up for hospitality, we won't have treats any longer. Oh, and I don't say that to shame you. If we pull treats, we pull treats. It's not a big deal. Um, we can live without bagels, right, for a couple hours. Uh, just the very concrete reality is if we don't have enough volunteers, we won't be able to do treats. And we think that's the least important thing of all the things that we do on a Sunday morning. We think it's more important for us to gather and sing. And so we need people on production and on music team. We think it's important for our kids to be in kids ministry, learning about Jesus, being cared for there. We think it's important for people to be greeted at the door with smiles and welcomed into the building. We think it's important for the pews to be reset so that there's little communion cups. Even I, I, I know they're awful. But we want them there because they remind us of what Jesus has done for us, and we do that at the end of every sermon. We want to remember who Jesus is, and so we think all of that is far more important than having some bagels. But the reality is, if we don't have more people, we won't have bagels. So there you go. That's the information. Um, also, we are moving um, kind of the fellowship time around bagels and coffee down to Elfers Hall, which is below me. Um, so if you're not familiar with the church building, go out those doors, or you can go that way and kind of go down underneath to the basement of the church. And we'll trap you down there and get to know you, tell you why you should stay um, over coffee and bagels. So a couple of housekeeping things there. Um, now back to kind of preaching. I'm going to come back to this text. Still want to come back to it. But before I get back to this text specifically, I want to, I want to just kind of um, address a few different people in our gathering right now. 
Some of you are new to Park Community Church. You've been coming for a couple weeks, maybe for the summer, and you're trying to decide if you want to make this your church home. Some of you have been here for a couple of years, and you're trying to decide if you want to stick around. Some of you have been here for 60 or 70 years. Others have been here for like six or seven years since City Vision Church planted, and then we merge. And so I say that to say some of you have been in this church body, with this church family, maybe even in this church building for a long, long time. Thank you for your faithfulness. Regardless of your history with Park Community Church, I want to just kind of give all of us, whether you're new and trying to decide if you want to stick around, whether if you've been here for a couple of years and, you know, after COVID and after the social ills of the last few years and confusion, you're trying to decide, do I, do I like this church enough to stick around? Um, or you've been here forever and you're like, well, where am I going to go now? I'm stuck. Um, I want to just share with you who Park is and where we're going in this next season of ministry. And this text is actually going to tie into it really well, but I'm going to save that for the end. And so to just for a way of review for those of you who have been around for a while and maybe those of you who are near, who are new, I want to remind you who we are and where we're going. And so Park's mission, why does Park exist? I have to turn my clicker on if I want to use it, I guess. Um, Park's mission, our purpose this church exists to be and make disciples of Jesus together. That's it. It's not a catchy slogan. It's super generic. Most churches, hopefully they exist to be and make disciples of Jesus. Some may have a catchier slogan or a certain phrase or a way of saying that, but this is why we exist as a church, to be and make disciples of Jesus together. Everything that we do as a church community exists to help you walk with Jesus. A disciple is an apprentice or a follower of Jesus. It's somebody who's striving day in and day out in all of life's ups and downs to surrender their life to Jesus, to read his scriptures, to get to know him, to live in a community who's striving to follow after him and to apply his teaching and his ways. And that's why we exist. And we do this together. And we say we have to be and make disciples because we, we, we believe that Jesus has called us. He gave us the great commission in Matthew chapter 28. He says to his followers, his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we can't make something that we're not also becoming, right? And sometimes I, I think the church gets busy doing stuff before we are reminded to become like Jesus, to grow into our identity as Jesus' followers. And so this is why we exist. Everything at Park exists for this purpose, whether it's preaching, whether it's singing, whether it's community groups, whether it's serving on a team, whether it's having coffee with a friend, whether it's meeting for lunch, whatever we do, we want all of it to be towards the aim of being and making disciples of Jesus together, people who apprentice Jesus in all of life's ups and downs. And we want to do this with grace, right? Because in the journey of walking with Jesus, on the path of following Jesus, there are many lives, there are many ups and downs in life, right? Some of you are struggling with addiction and you need people to walk with you towards Jesus in your addiction. You don't need to be judged or condemned for your addiction. You need somebody to jump in there and say, I need help. I know Jesus wants to set me free. He came to set me free. And would you walk with me towards Jesus? Would you help me to understand what it means to walk with Jesus? Some of you are battling depression, chronic depression, your whole life. And, and so the way that you follow Jesus may not look like the, the, 
the person who's sitting next to you. Your walk with Jesus may be very different than their walk with Jesus, but you need them and they need you to together follow Jesus. Some of you have anxiety. Some of us are struggling with many different things. Loss of loved ones, hardships in life, losses, losing a job, losing a marriage, losing a child, longing for a marriage and not finding one. And we exist as a church family, as a church community to help one another become in those situations and whatever life has thrown at you. All of life's circumstances, we exist to help each other become and stay followers of Jesus, to keep, simply keep walking with Jesus and to help other people walk with Jesus. That's our purpose. Now, our, our vision or our practice, kind of how we do this, this is how we see this being done. We strive to live as a family of sons and daughters who pursue God, brothers and sisters who practice his ways, and neighbors and witnesses who proclaim his gospel. We believe that the church is family. It's not an organization. I mean, there's some organizing that needs to happen, right? And technically, because we have a 501c3, we have bylaws, we have a constitution, right? That in order to exist as a, as a church, we have to have some organizational pieces. But that's not the heartbeat of the church. The heartbeat of the church is not programs. It is not events. It is not how we organize and how we, how we do things. It's that we belong together. We belong to God. We belong together. We are a family, regardless of your familial status. If you're married with kids, if you're divorced, if you're a single, regardless of your familial status, if you become a part of Park Community Church, our practice, our desire is to rope you into the family so that you know you're not alone on this journey of following Jesus. That as you strive to become a disciple, as you strive to become an apprentice or a follower of Jesus and to make more apprentices or followers of Jesus, you're not doing that alone. You do that in the midst of a family who loves you. So that's our heartbeat for the church. We are the family of God. Over and over again, the scriptures refer to the church as a family or the household of God. Our heart for you is that you would find a loving family of sons and daughters who pursue God, brothers and sisters who practice his ways, and neighbors and witnesses who proclaim his gospel. Let me summarize this for you by saying that we want to put our identity before our activity. Our identity in who we are in Christ before our activity and what we do for Christ. Right, a lot of churches will try and get you in and like get you going right away. You gotta go be an evangelist, you gotta go evangelize your neighbors, you gotta sign up on this team, you gotta join the hospitality team, you gotta do some stuff, right? Get active, pursue God, practice his ways, proclaim his gospel. We believe that Christian activity is really important. But Christian activity flows out of your gospel identity. Why do we pursue God? Why do we read scripture? Why do we sing songs? Why do we pray? These are acts of pursuing God. Why, why would we do that? Well, you do that because God has adopted you as a son or a daughter, and he longs to be with you. Isn't that amazing? We're so much more motivated to be in God's word and to sing praises to him and to grow in our relationship with God when we are reminded that he has adopted us into his family and that he sees you. He sees you as a beloved son or daughter. A lot of us have broken relationships with parents, right? 
And so there's some filtering that has to go through that. You're like, if God is a father, I'm not sure that I really want that relationship. Here's what you need to know. God as a heavenly father is an incredible father. He's everything that you wish your father would have been. He's there for you. He's a protector. He's a provider. He's, he, he cares for you. He knows you. Psalm 139 says that God formed us wonderfully and made us fearfully. He knows you and he loves you and he longs to be with you. And so we pursue God simply because we've been adopted into his family and God wants a relationship with us. We have to keep identity before activity. We're brothers and sisters who practice his ways. So we practice his ways. We, we believe that when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacekeepers, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who seek justice, blessed are those who walk in humility, we want to do that. Blessed are those who give their stuff away. Blessed are those who help the poor. Blessed are those who forgive people who have offended and hurt them. We want to do that. We actually believe that Jesus' ways are the most life-giving ways. That Jesus, when he, when he said, I came, and, and I, gave, I came to give life and to give it abundantly, we believe that as we live our lives in line with Jesus' teaching, Jesus' ways, the way that Jesus modeled life, we believe that as we do that, Life actually flourishes. Life functions the best. And so we strive to practice Jesus' ways not out of religious duty or shaming. We strive to practice his ways because we're in his family and we have brothers and sisters who need to encourage us and we need encouragement by them, who need to challenge us and we need to be challenged by them. And so we gather into smaller communities, whether that's a formalized community through the church, a community group, whether that's just some friends getting together for lunches or for dinners or for coffees or whatever it is, we as brothers and sisters, we belong to one another. Not all of us have great relationships with our siblings. I'm going to talk about this in just a minute. Like how we do life together. But the reality is, regardless of your relationship with your siblings, there's, there's some type of bond. Even if you're at a rift with a sibling that you haven't spoke to for years, isn't there this longing in your soul that that would be resolved? Our identity is as brothers and sisters. We belong to one another. And together we encourage each other and challenge each other to practice the ways of Jesus, to put into practice the things that he taught. And then we're neighbors and witnesses who proclaim the gospel. We live in this world as sojourners, as aliens. We don't belong to the world, but we live in this world as neighbors. We all have neighbors, whether it's your physical neighbor, or whether it's people that you work with, family members, friends, your sphere of influence, your sphere of relationship. God has put you in that place in life to be a neighbor, a loving neighbor to whoever you do life with, and to be a witness to the good news, the gospel of Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through him, and he came to give life and to give it abundantly, and so we exist. God has given us this life to live in relationship to others, and as we do that, both in word and deed, we proclaim the gospel, right? Some of you are, are evangelists. You like to actually open up your mouth and speak the truths of Jesus and call people into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Others, that's not your thing. That's intimidating. And it seems unnatural. And, and in fact, when you open your mouth and talk about Jesus, it seems like people put up walls. Well, some of you, you're, you may be better at it. And I, it can't be one or the other, right? We all need to love people in word and deed. But some of you, God's going to use your deeds far more powerfully than he's going to use your words to proclaim the gospel the way that you love people with acts of service, the way that you care for people, the way that you minister to, the, to them through what you do. 
And we do this because we see ourselves, our identity is as neighbors and witnesses to the world. And because of that, our activity is to, to proclaim the gospel in word and deed. So that's, that's our practice. Um, that's what we do at Park Community Church. We exist to be and make disciples of Jesus together. We strive to do this by living as a family of sons and daughters who pursue God, brothers and sisters who practice Jesus' ways, and neighbors and witnesses who proclaim his gospel. But here, here's a new piece to this puzzle, and it's just for a season, and it's a review for anyone who was here last week. Pastor Ben told me I should share this again, and I learned to do what Pastor Ben tells me to do. So last week I, I shared these four statements, and, and I... Just for the season of life and ministry together, here's Park's culture or our posture towards one another and towards the world. That we would walk in intimacy with God, that we would strive for authenticity with each other, that we would pursue simplicity and sincerity in all that we do. So we exist to be and make disciples. Our vision is to live as a family. You know, I already shared that. But how do we do that? As sons and daughters, you, you can have, I already mentioned this, but a rift in your relationship with your parents. As brothers and sisters, you can have a rift in your relationship with your brothers and sisters. As neighbors and witnesses, just because you're a neighbor of somebody doesn't mean that you have a great relationship with that person, correct? And so, how do we do this? What is the culture of Park Community Church? What's our posture towards one another and what's our posture towards the world? What's our posture towards God? Think about, think about it in that way. Our posture towards God, our posture towards each other, and our posture towards the world. And it is that we want an intimate relationship with God. We want to pursue intimacy over information. I actually want you, and this all comes from my own heart and what God did in me on sabbatical. And again, I shared this last week, so I apologize for the review, but I actually think sometimes we need more repetition than we do more information because we have so much information and yet we fail so often to apply the things that we've already known. And so in the way of repetition, Ben told me I should share this again. My heart for my personal walk with Jesus is that I would have a growing intimacy with God, my Father. That, that I would grow up into him who is the head. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship, he says, doctrinal systems and man-made programs can render discipleship or walking with Jesus superfluous and may in fact be harmful to the whole concept of following Christ. What he's saying is sometimes that we get so much information, we get so much doctrinal clarity, we have so many answers, we've done so many Bible studies, we've done so many podcasts, we've read so many blogs, we've read so many theological textbooks, or we've binged so many sermons and we have all these ideas of who God is. We know God in our head, but we've failed to experience God in our hearts and our lives. And, and I can't tell you how true this has been for me the last couple of years, where I've tried to know things about God and about the world. I've, I've thought that we've had to answer the social ills of the world by applying knowledge about who God is or knowledge about the way that the world works. And I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place for that, but what my soul has needed is to know God, not to know about God. Amen? Here's the difference. When you know God versus knowing about God, knowing about God is like, yeah, I'm supposed to pray. Knowing God is, I want to talk to my Father. Knowing about God is, yeah, there's tragedies in my life right now, and I guess God is sovereign, right? I don't know why he caused this. 
and you get kind of bitter and questioning him, knowing God is, yes, there's tragedy. God is good. I don't know this mystery, but I'm going to cling on to him because I love him and I know that he loves me and I trust his heart for me even though I can't make sense of it. That's intimacy with God. Our posture, our culture, I want this growing intimacy with God, not just information about God, this pursuit of information. Or authenticity, and I'm going to throw some passages up here. Um, Psalm 139 kind of captures our culture or our posture regarding intimacy and authenticity. Psalm 139, the first part of the psalm, I preached this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go back there and look at it again, but it's all about our intimate relationship with God, that God knows us, he made us, he formed us, and then our authenticity with God. God created you in a certain way, with certain style, with certain personality, with certain habits, with certain things that you like to do, certain things that you don't like to do, and he wants to utilize that for your own good. Don't violate yourself to try to be, become somebody you're not. God, God wants you to be authentically sanctified version of you, the most holy, godly, surrendered version of you. That's what God wants, and that's what you need, and that's what the people who do life with you want and need. They don't need you to be somebody else. They need you to be you for the glory of God. And then flowing from that, simplicity and authenticity. I'm going to look at one passage here, and then we're going to come back to this John passage. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. If you have a Bible, flip there. Um, Even if you don't have a Bible, grab the one in front of you and flip there. It's on page 964. 964, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says to this church, which was in turmoil, so much turmoil. They were like fighting over which pastors they liked best, over sexual sin in the church. They were divided over that. Um, man, this church is a mess. If, if you want a picture of a messy church, read First and Second Corinthians and here, Paul, in his second letter to them, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, so that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. That's what I mean by simplicity and sincerity, our posture towards one another. We're not, we're not like getting caught up in the perceived wisdom of the world, right? He says, not by earthly wisdom, There's a lot of talk in the world. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of hot takes on the most recent drama. There's a lot of opinions on how to handle COVID. I don't know that anyone has it figured out. There's a lot of opinions on how we respond to the injustices in our world. I don't know that anybody has it figured out. What Paul is doing here is saying that we as Christians, we behave in the world, not by earthly wisdom, not by worldly wisdom, not by getting caught up in the arguments of the world, but we behave in the world towards one another and towards those outside of our church family with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not caught up in the complexity, not digging our heels into our stances and our opinions and our perspectives and this new source and that new source or this doctrinal stance or that doctrinal stance. Paul is saying that as believers, we ought to be the most unified people because we are living with simplicity and godly sincerity. 
The great theologian, Brittany Peterson, my wife, as we were talking through some of this recently, she said, the way that we follow Jesus is quantitative, qualitative, not quantitative. It's qualitative, not quantitative. It's this quality of relationship with God and each other. It's not all the information that we know. It's not all the programs that we can offer. It's not all of the felt needs that we can address and meet and and remove from people's lives. It's not that the church has all the right answers about COVID, all the right answers about racism, all the right answers about sexism, all the right answers about whatever fill in your ism. It's, It's this qualitative relationship between God and one another. And the way that the world will see Christ in us, the hope of glory, is as you and I together walk with intimacy, authenticity, simplicity, and sincerity. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, a pastor who passed away a few years ago, writes this. He says, the way of Jesus cannot be reduced to information and instruction. That's what I mean about intimacy versus information, right? You can't reduce the way of Jesus to a class, to a seminar, to some more knowledge about this is what it means to follow Jesus. The way of Jesus cannot be reduced to information and instruction. Jesus is a person who lived among people and now abides in us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. We learn to trust and follow him only as we keep walking with him in a personal manner. Unfortunately, the more popular American church strategies in our respect to the church are not friendly to both the local and the personal. The American way with its propensity for catchy slogans and stirring visions denigrates the local, and its programmatic ways of dealing with people erodes the personal, replacing intimacy with function. The North American church at present is conspicuous for replacing the way of Jesus with the American way. The culture of Park, the posture of Park, that that I as one of the pastors here and as our elders have talked about this and prayed through this is not that we want to create more programs, more opportunities. And I'm not saying that programs are bad, that programs are wrong. It's just that walking with Jesus, that was amazing. Was that like a a video game? Like, did I just say something good or bad? I don't know if that was a bonus or a... Walking with Jesus can't be accomplished through more sermons. But I'm going to keep preaching. Walking with, walking with Jesus can't be accomplished through more classes. That we're going to keep offering classes and seminars and Bible studies. Walking with Jesus can't be accomplished through more Bible studies, through discipleship circles, through mentorship programs, through more blogs, more podcasts, more books. Through bigger vision, catchier slogans, more streamlined programs. Walking with Jesus can't be accomplished through that. I'm not saying anything bad against those. We should do those. We will do those. We do those things. But if your hope is in that, that's not how we walk with Jesus. We walk with Jesus. It's this personal, abiding relationship with ups and downs. It's messy. It's not efficient. We live in a culture of efficiency. I will give you an hour for this discipleship thing. I will give you an hour and a half for a church on a Sunday morning. I will give you an hour and a half for a community group. I will meet you for coffee to do a Bible study, but I've got to fit it into my calendar. I've got all these other things going on. That is not walking with Jesus. Discipleship is so inefficient. It's so hard. And all those things, Bible studies, blogs, podcasts, sermons, singing, that's all part of our discipleship. It's all aimed to help us become and make disciples of Jesus, but it can't accomplish it. It's just a piece of the puzzle. And so our 
our culture at Park, our, our posture towards these things is that we want to grow in intimacy with God, authenticity with ourselves, and walk in the world with simplicity and sincerity. And I just want you to know that because if, if you're looking for something flashy and growing and like, you know, just like the next big thing as a church, you're probably going to be very disappointed with Park. We want to be like a basic family that gets to know you over time that years down the road when your life falls apart, there's people who will give you a hug and walk with you through that season. We want to point you over and over and over again to the scriptures with simplicity and sincerity. We don't want to try and convince the world that we've got COVID figured out because we don't. Even our doctors are torn. We want to try and convince the world that we have racial injustice figured out because we don't. We, we want to love God and love people. We care about injustices, but we don't know how to address that and approach that. And so complex. But we want to together, man and woman, black and white, brown and black, walk with Jesus intimately in authenticity, with simplicity and sincerity. And so with that, let's go back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. In order to really get the point here at the end of this chapter, I just need to take you on a quick little review of John chapter 6. Look at John chapter 6, verse 2. Jesus' ministry is just ramping up. He's been healing some people. There's kind of this buzz about this new rabbi, this new teacher, this new pastor, this new podcaster, this new miracle worker. This thing is growing into a megachurch. John chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. There's a huge crowd of people following Jesus because they see some extraordinary power healing. I want healing. I want to be touched by Jesus. I want to be near this miracle worker. This large crowd is following him. There's some hype. There's some feelings of, of potential power and dominance and healing. And Jesus has something. We need to be with him. We want to be in the in crowd. And so there's this crowd following him. Jesus goes on to feed 5,000 people here in this text, and then after that miraculous deal, he gets on a boat, he goes across a sea, and then he spends some time teaching about being the bread of life. Pick it up here in verse 25. And so Jesus has, you know, it says, this large crowd is following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. I want to be near this miracle worker. And then Jesus does this miraculous thing where he feeds this massive crowd he gets on the water, he goes across the lake, and then the disciples are chasing him down. Verse 25, John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I love it. Jesus disappears without telling him. As we should all do every now and then. Turn your phone off. Get away from the crowd. Get away from the hype. Get away from the complexity and spend some time with Jesus. Model, follow what Jesus modeled intimacy with your father. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Remember, that's the first reason why the crowd was following him. They saw signs, and so they were following him. But now, he says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
So now there's crowds of people following him because of the signs that he did, but also like the, the, the physical things that he provided. Jesus met my need. He can heal my disease and he can meet my need. These are all good things that Jesus can do, but there's something deeper, more important here. Verse 27, he says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. See that simplicity there? What, what must we do to be doing the works of God? We've got to do good works. We've got to alleviate all of life's injustices. We've got to do more Bible study, have more repentance, have more prayer meetings, have more things. We've got to feed the, the hungry. We've got to clothe the homeless. We've got to shelter the homeless. We've got to do more things, do more things, do more things. And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So simple. I mean, right? It's a simple statement. It's a hard thing to actually accomplish when we're living life. And then Jesus goes on to teach about being the bread of life, and, and he goes on to give this teaching that, that my flesh, as you eat my flesh and as you drink my blood, that's where eternal life comes from, and everybody's confused. That sounds weird, right? We're not Catholic. We don't believe that the wafer and the cup actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Nothing against the Catholics, right? In fact, they have some reverence around communion, which sometimes I wish we had a little more of because we just have our little paper cups, rip it back, right? But, but Jesus uses this metaphor that my body, as you eat my body, you'll receive the bread of eternal life. As you drink my blood, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. And so he gives us teaching and then pick it up again in verse 60. This is what Linda read, and we're going to close on this. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard teaching. We don't understand. That's a complex teaching. What is, what, what do you mean, Jesus? Eat your body and drink your blood. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, disciples grumble. It's okay. We don't want to stay grumbling. We don't want to perpetually grumble. But this is part of walking with Jesus. We have seasons where we don't understand what he's doing, what he's saying, and we grumble about it and with each other. Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take, it, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's a hard statement too that we could wrestle with forever and ever. And there's a lot of theological takes on what Jesus means by that. And churches will divide over it and create doctrinal systems over it. But notice what comes next. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. To be a disciple means you walk with Jesus. It means you keep walking with Jesus. When the teachings of Jesus are hard, when the, when the teachings of the church are hard or you don't fully understand them, when life's circumstances hit you on every side, some people walk away. 
Some people deconstruct their faith to the point where there's no faith left. Some people abandon the church. Many of the disciples who came to Jesus to see the signs that he was doing, and because they had their fill of bread, when things got hard, they said, you know what, I'm out. I don't know if I can follow Jesus down this road. I'm no longer walking with Jesus. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, and the 12 apostles here, do you want to go away as well? I love this. He's not forcing them. He's giving them an option. Do you want to keep following me? Do you want to keep walking with me? Or do you want to go away as well? A bunch of people are leaving. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what I mean by simplicity and sincerity. Peter doesn't get caught up in, in all of these hard teachings, trying to figure all of it out in that moment. Peter doesn't get caught up in the hard circumstances of life and, and trying to parse it all out so that he has answers and can fit everything together. And Peter actually, in this moment, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have, you have the words of eternal life. We have believed. Do you remember earlier in John chapter 6? John chapter 6, verse 29, 28 and 29, then they said to him, what must we do, do to be doing the works of God? I want to be right with God. What must I do to be right with God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Peter, in this crisis moment when people are falling away and he has to make a choice, am I going to keep walking with Jesus or not? Am I going to keep walking with Jesus or not? Am I going to keep walking with Jesus or not? The church is a mess. The world is a mess. I don't understand all the things of God. These teachings are hard. What am I going to do with it? Peter had heard Jesus say, the work of God is to believe in the Son. Peter simply, with sincerity, says, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And yet Peter would go on to deny Jesus, to doubt Jesus, to run his mouth, to make a fool of himself and all of the disciples. Yet in simplicity, with sincerity, because he had intimacy with God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, and as he embraced authenticity, he was able to say, where else shall I go? I'm clinging to you. You have the words of eternal life. I don't understand what you mean by if I eat your flesh and drink your blood. I don't understand what you mean that, that God has chosen some to come to him and not others. I don't understand, but I believe that you are the appointed son of God, the appointed Messiah. You're the holy one, the set-apart one, the Christ. That's where Park is going in this season. This fall, we're doing a sermon series called Disciples Walk with Jesus, and we're going to just keep looking at these figures and see how the early followers walked with Jesus day in and day out, clinging to him, even though life is hard, teachings get confusing, the world is a mess. What does it look like for us to cling to Jesus and walk with him? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that you walked with the disciples and yeah, we, we exist to be and make disciples, to walk with you. Our job is to keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. But there's something beautiful about the fact that you walked with the disciples. 
even in the midst of their doubts, of their depression, of their abandonment, in their denial. Lord, you kept walking, you invited them to stay, you, you kept relationship with them. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning that we would be reminded that the life of faith is a life of, life of simple obedience where we keep walking with you. Jesus, we thank you that you have invited us to the table. What an amazing thought that you invite us to the table to have communion with you as part of our daily rhythm and weekly walk. We love you, Jesus. May we, like Peter, be able to say, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. As we transition now to communion, I want you to sit where you're at for just a minute as the band starts playing the song and read John chapter 6, verse 52 through 58. On your own, just read that. Read Jesus' teaching about his body and his blood. And don't get caught up in hard interpretations of it. Just read Jesus' teaching. Then be reminded as you take communion that he gave his body for you, the bread of everlasting life, that he shed his blood for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you believe that, take communion when you feel led and ready after reading that. And then stand and sing gospel truth with us as we close out.